Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Private Equity Talks podcast. In this episode, we'll discuss the rise of trade buyers and how GPs are setting themselves up to win assets in competitive processes. I'm Talia Masiri, editor of Real Deals, and I'm joined by Sam Fuller, managing director at Hula and Loki, and Miles Otway, partner at Connection Capital. Hi, both. Hello. How are you? Hi, great, great. Thanks for joining me today. Um, just to start, perhaps we can get a quick introduction from you both and a, a quick background into your roles and your firms. Um, so, Miles, if you don't mind starting us off. Of course. So, uh, Miles Otway, partner at Connection Capital, as you've said. Um, I head up new business across our SME investments team. Um, so, we look at businesses of varying scale, but uh, fundraisers of sort of three to 12 million pounds um, across private equity and private debt investments. Um, so, majority MBOs at one end, all the way down to um, private equity, uh, sorry, private debt investments, typically for growth capital or small cash out um, at the other end. So, that's us in a nutshell. Great, thanks, Miles. And, and Sam, thanks for joining us as well today. Hi, yeah, I'm Sam Fuller. I'm the Managing Director at Hula and Loki, and we're a global investment bank. I work in the consumer team. We're typically advising stuff from 100 million to a billion in EV. Sam, what, what are you seeing? Things are undeniably slower. Um, I think as a firm, we still have plenty of mandates and there are plenty of pitches, etc. But Given the macro uncertainty, there is a tendency for things to push right on timeline. Um, we are, I think the IPO market being slammed shut doesn't help. Even if you're not considering an IPO of a business in a, in a process, it's still a really good sign of morale and a sort of bellwether for the broader MA economy. So I think that and the combination of debt markets being a lot tighter has just meant um, compared to the first half of last year, which was starting to become a bit of a post-COVID bonanza, things mm. are slower. Um, quality is yeah. still getting done, but things are slower. Sure, sure, makes sense. And, and Miles, is it same at your end of the market? Or? Yeah, I think there's there's a distinction that I draw at our end is that there is always an underlying level of almost life event driven um, transactions in the low mid market and that and that's typically driven by the fact that much of those businesses are the first transition out of a founder into you know professional ownership or a management management buyout or something similar um, and you know, the way I put it is you only turn 70 once and that that tends to trigger a set of behaviors around you know people who've got all of their wealth tied up in uh, all of their their life's work tied up in a business that, that they want to move into retirement so you always have an underlying level there Clearly, I'd, I'd agree with Sam generally, you know, 2021 was certainly a, a, you know, a post-COVID a very, very uh, busy period. There are a lot of deals that came out, variable quality. And I think one of the big issues with 2021 at the small end was sort of opportunism is probably the wrong term, but businesses being brought to the market with, without having fully uh, worked through the implications of COVID, either in, in terms of the trading they were showing us or in terms of the, the longer term forecasts. As we've moved into 2022, I think you've still got that underlying lifestyle-driven, uh, life event-driven um, mm. level of, of business ongoing. But I think some of that froth has come out of those types of businesses that were riding a little bit of a wave of, of, of people post-COVID. Sure. That's sure. In large part because you've got enough trading now to to get a a, a proper proper bead on what the new world has actually looked like for them. Um, so I think that that's that's sort of softened the market a bit. That's not to say there aren't still a lot of um, transactions coming through. And to mm -hmm. Sam's point, you know, slippage to the right and taking longer, um, I think is the consistent theme across the board, whatever size of, of transaction you're in. 
Okay, okay, really interesting. And and what about kind of competition overall? What are we seeing? Uh, Miles, if we, we stick with you first, and then Sam, if you can follow in terms of kind of what, what types of businesses, what sectors are attracting um, kind of strategic as well as trade buyer attention? Yeah. I mean, from the connection end, we're, we're, we're generalist. We, we, we get our money from a network of 1,400 high net worths worth, pick a number, but somewhere around mm -hmm. 20 billion. And so from that perspective, we can, we can look at a whole range of different sectors, which gives us quite a good bead on how this is switch shifting mm -hmm. because you see it, you see it. Mm -hmm. So there are sectors, albeit, you know, Netflix's recent announcements is an interesting one, but there are sectors like the, the UK studio market and things like that that are being buoyed by um, some of the uh, the um, dynamics that have come out the back end of COVID around mm. people's behaviour patterns, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Equally, then there are sectors that have found it very tough. So anything in you know manufacturing and things of that ilk are finding it very difficult. Cost increases, you know, supply constraints, all of those kinds of things are hitting those sectors. So I think where you have a, as inevitably happens, where you have a sector that has been resilient or indeed been a beneficiary in those types of circumstance, what you find is you know, a lot of money piles in and you can get very competitive processes. Equally, at the other end, you have processes that don't happen at all. Um, simply because you know that sector has taken such a hit um, at that point or has taken such a such a the environment has changed on it so much that people want to uh, apologies my computer binging in the background there um, yeah. people want to, uh, to to see where it's all going to land over a period of time so I, what we found is quite a divergent uh, experience competition wise on different businesses in different sectors some mm. very, very heavily competed because they yeah. are in a, in a sector that's a beneficial and there's a lot of money sloshing out around there that hasn't been deployed still and then others where it's sort of you're effectively closed for business in that sector for a while while people uh, work out what the new world looks like um, and, and in particular while some of the implications of inflation etc start to bed in so and are there any specific examples you can give in terms of the businesses that are getting kind of increased attention and, and any yeah. any assets that perhaps you you're you're looking at so I, I you will probably not um, hence the example I gave at the beginning there so we're looking at a couple of things in and around the the UK production uh, market um in studio space etc um, and that's largely because that is a dynamic around um the streaming streaming services albeit you've had Netflix give some negative mm -hmm. news and Disney give some positive news but mm -hmm. that's a marketplace where the post-covid environment more people at home less um less going out etc cetera, etc cetera, has been a marked beneficiary um and so you see quite a bit of activity in those spaces um, so that's one where, where, where we focus some time. Similarly, you're seeing quite a lot around um, small consulting businesses, okay. um, a lot around uh, research and, and, and data uh, businesses, in particular around, you know, uh, we're looking at something in, in, in the space that does a lot of work with government around uh, producing uh, research in those areas, because there is so much change ongoing. And when you do get those kinds of environments, you know, there are specialist skill sets that become particularly valuable. Um, so again, we, we're looking at a few things in that space. Okay, really interesting. Um, and then Sam, perhaps on, on your side, when it comes to kind of the, the consumer market, um, what, what types of, what's competition like at the moment? Um, and what types of businesses in particular are, are kind of gaining attention from both financial sponsors and um, trade buyers? The competition is a little thinner at the moment. Uh, I'd say leverage, but leverage into M&A in the consumer sector is, is hard work, which I think is hamstring mm. private equity somewhat. We are seeing more trade interest, though, as a number of strategics out there have got to make up for lost time in terms of their growth plans. And therefore, buying back into growth is, is a good way to make up for the years you lost through COVID. So we are okay. seeing trade um, participate more in processes 
I think in terms of what's attractive, I think when there's volatility out there and uncertainty, there's a bit of a flight to quality uh, and around and, and a flight to sort of sustainable earnings. I think in consumer, you're seeing people are starting to focus on travel again now, maybe not for this year, but certainly for next year, I think that'll be quite a hot market as there's still a lot of pent up travel to be done. I think food and beverage is always reasonably strong. Beauty has been very strong with strategics for a couple of years now in particular. And there's always a buy universe for fast upcoming beauty brands. Um, and I think pet has also been a very good category for us yeah. as a firm. Mm. That's one COVID trend that if you bought a, a pet during COVID, you've got to keep feeding it and looking after it. So that, that, those, those sort of businesses are still um, prospering and doing well. So it, look, it's, it's um, con consumer, there is a bit of a focus on discretionary spend, especially in the UK. I think where businesses have got a little bit more international exposure, that's proving attractive as well. Um, and competition overall, yeah, it's not as hot as it was. Um, and there aren't quite as many full-blown auction processes out there as there used to be. Um, it's just lending itself to slightly more discreet rifle shot processes now, which obviously help trade um, possibly more than it helps PE. And I think our, our experience, if we looked at the previous, you know, um, recessions, et cetera, on the smaller end around consumer, you do get these... Yeah, there's a squeezed middle aspect to it. So you can have businesses that will do well out of trade down. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a modular sofa business that we're looking at that, you know, has done exceptionally well out of trade down in previous periods and could well be a beneficiary at the moment for people on that side. Um, very good value. Um, and then at the other end, you have the, the very high end luxury, you know, a little bit, you know, once you get to a certain level of super premium, it ceases to be really affected to the same degree. Um, and then those two those two ends of the business of the sector tend to take more attraction. What we see quite a lot of at the moment, and are hard to really get your head around and hard to look at from an investment committee on the consumer side, are the ones in the in the middle, um, particularly sort of upper middle class type spending levels. You know, in terms of core yeah. demographics, etc. Because you know, it, it's just it, it's very hard to see that kind of um, model bucking the trends that it's struggling with. Mm. You know, supply in particular if it's supplying from overseas. Um, etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know you then get the impact of inflation pressure on people's household incomes etc cetera, etc cetera. and that just makes that middle middle section of the market which which is where the bulk of businesses are in in, in the normal circumstances yeah the hard area to to, to to really assess accurately it doesn't mean there aren't good businesses in there that'll grow um in, in, in despite those headwinds but it, it does make it difficult to assess which inherently uh, will scare off some buyers yeah, yeah, definitely. I kind of, as you were saying earlier, I guess kind of looking at the financials of certain businesses and their kind of trading performances over kind of the last couple of years um, can make it a bit trickier than a, than a usual kind of normal stable market uh, buying process. Um, okay, and now I'm kind of keen to, to switch over. Now we've kind of gained a, a sense of the market today. Um, switching to looking at how trade buyers are perhaps positioning themselves um, against private equity. Um, yes, yeah, so kind of are oh, Sam maybe from from your perspective or um, in in the last year or so, um, or even further, are trade buyers winning deals over private equity buyers? Kind of, or how how are they differentiating differentiating themselves? Uh, yeah, I think, look, I think trade have. Uh, it worked out that private equity is so often the competition for assets and therefore have learned, and I don't sound patronising trade, but have, have learned how to participate in processes, keep to a process timeline, and also learned how to incentivize management with sort of quasi nuco structures, quasi management incentivization packages that match what private equity can do for management. Because so often 
a trade buyer is misaligned with a, a management team who would far rather do a productivity round. I think trade have really caught up with that. And mm-hmm. look, I think at the moment, the way the market is, I think trade have, uh, are, are much more competitive than perhaps ever before. Um, as I say, leverage is hard for private equity, which means they can't compete quite so swiftly and potentially, potentially quite as aggressively on price. Uh, and I think equally we're finding that fewer and fewer people in this, this market want to be winning a red hot auction with hundreds of participants, which takes you down a more rifle shot, bespoke, smaller audience process and trade within those um, parameters can often compete very effectively because fundamentally what a pad of beat trade, they beat them on price and they beat them on speed. Um, and if you, if you pull back on leverage a bit, price is harder to achieve. And if you have a more bespoke auction where you are, especially if you're sort of being more accommodating to trade and, and they're sort of slightly t- slower turnarounds, mm. then again, it just makes trade that bit more competitive. So on a, on a sort of slightly uneven playing field where the auction is skewed to a, a sort of a trade friendly process, then trade really can win through. And with- yeah, yeah, really interesting. And I, I get a sense that kind of trade buyers, um, again, not, not to be patronising, but they're perhaps more experienced and perhaps more sophisticated when it comes to these processes now and so have kind of that that those internal resource that that's able to kind of perhaps keep up um with the pace at which um a, a lead kind of someone leading the process will we'll be looking for yeah i mean especially when someone's a large trade they've got their own MA team sort of full of mm. people like me who know exactly how processes work and the sort of the old myth that it takes six weeks to turn around a confidentiality agreement is, is pretty much dispelled now so if trade wants an asset, they um they can move quickly. And often as well, they can take shortcuts on diligence because they don't need to do commercial due diligence. They just need to check for um, black holes, et cetera, in the numbers. And once they've got through that, they can move quickly. So, um, yeah, I say there's some pretty sophisticated trade buyers out there now. And, uh, and uh, you know, with a, with pricing coming off a bit, they're not losing out to overpriced IPOs anymore. Mm. So I think you're going to see a real year. Uh, 12, 18 months ahead where there'll be a lot more strategic acquirers of assets. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting. So we, you know, being where we are in our life cycle as a, as a business and our investment portfolio, you know, we're in the process of doing deals. We're also in the process of exiting deals. And, and a lot of those that those that we exit, we hope are going to get into Sam's range in terms of scale um, versus those we originally invested in. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing, I think, that we've seen there. We have seen some of what um, you're, you're, you're referring to there in terms of increased sophistication and speed and process. And it, you know, Hulahan uh, advised us on the sale of a business called Tempcover, um, mm-hmm. which uh, has ended up being acquired by RVU, the owner of Confused and Switch, in a competitive process that included private equity and so on. But I would say that the, the, the speed of that turnaround was, um, the PE side was quicker. Okay. Uh, and and you know, had Omicron not it not intervened and, and produced a hiatus in that process, it would have been almost certainly a PE exit. So I think there is some truth to it, but it depends. It does depend very much on the individual trade buyer and where they've got to in their gestation as an acquirer. Are yeah. the better ones actually? Funnily enough, because they are they are uh, backed. They are a, an acquisitive business. They bought Confuse.com previously in Uswitch, so they have that um, that aspect to it. But so I think we've seen at that scale, um, getting up towards some um, scale of, of business. Um, that I think that's the case. When you play down at the lower end, it, you know there's two dynamics going on. The first is the scale of trade buyer that you're dealing with. You know, at a let's say sub fifty million EV level tends to have not got to that scale of, of, of sophistication and so on. So they may well be prepared to pay up above 
PE, interestingly, mm. at our mm. end, because our end of the market has never had big access to leverage. It still doesn't to this day, and it probably never will. And ultimately, our, all of our deals, you know, there isn't any financial engineering to be had. You either get into a business and help them double the size of it, or you don't, and that's where yeah. you get the returns. So I think at the lower mid-market end, you're unlikely to see that same dynamic. And it's one of the reasons why you know, we like where we sit in the lower mid-market is that mm material dramatic change in the opportunity in a business comes from growth and, and, and driving that on and supporting that growth and helping the management team go and do some of that. If it's a pure trade acquisition at that point, either you have to have something very, very special that mm. one of the larger trade who are experienced and can move that quickly want to do it. And at that same point, can in, as you say, Sam, can incentivize that management team. So at the at the end where we are, where a lot of it's the first time it's come out of vendors' hands into the management team's hands, you know, and those traditional MBOs and growth capital deals at that size, trade finds it difficult largely because of the the uh, the inability to to make that work for a, for a team who are going to have one go at it and that's their one go. As you move sure. up the scale through a couple of rounds, maybe one or two rounds of private equity ownership or similar, at that point, it's part of the, the expectation of the business and so on. And in, also, those individuals are often less immediately crucial to the business the day after completion. Mm. Whereas if you're a one and a half, two million, two and a half million EBITDA business, a lot of the knowledge and skill set, there'll be a big gap typically between your top tier management team and the next tier in the organization. Yeah. So, that doesn't mean there aren't trade businesses that who can come in and buy that, and, and particularly where there's a particular thing they want um, and that brings something to them, be it a client, be it a product, be it whatever it may be. Um, but it is inherently more difficult. Those businesses are inherently more unstable if you're not getting the management team mm. what they want, largely. So it doesn't mean that there's not a competitive environment and that trade hasn't got better at it because they have, and it is. But it, it, it's slightly different, I think, than the scale up, you know, into the, the hundreds of millions plus, whereas sure. you said, there can be an in-house M&A team bigger than my entire firm yeah. um, in, in some of those businesses. So it is a different, different dynamic. I agree yeah. with that. I think, I think there's also, as you say, I think what you're basically saying is that that sort of small cap end of the market, uh, anything that hasn't had PE ownership before, doesn't often have the discipline around financial and forecasting, around corporate governance, etc., and, it, and, and inherently, it's just a riskier play for trade. So they, they quite frankly, quite often rather a P guy, P firm had around with that business, professionalised it a bit, and then I'll pick it up next time round. Yeah, and I think even if, even if they do have those things, inherently, it is rare for it to be less management dependent. So, you know, in, once you get to a certain scale, you, know, you can always take the extreme example of, you know, Blackstone goes and buys Hilton. There is an inherent solid business that operates, you know, has hotels, does, does its job, you know, irrespective of who's in, in its leadership position. In our businesses, in almost inherently, there is always a level of, with very few exceptions, there are exceptions, but very few exceptions, reliance upon the core members of that management team. And therefore, if you aren't in a position to give them the opportunity that they would otherwise get from the MBO, they can make it very difficult for it to go to trade in, mm. inherently because so much of the business is embedded in them. Now, that doesn't mean that's not a big risk for us going in because it clearly is. But that's what we are here to do is to help that business expand itself and bring that, bring chairman to the table. All of those mm. things that we do as a as a low mid market PE firm. Yeah, really interesting. And uh, yeah, so as you say, then I guess it's kind of the, the experience, the track record and that that ability to navigate kind of certain governance um, challenges or, or areas that will need to be tackled to kind of take a business to the next level is I, something that PE buyers have. Yeah, and a good example, I think, would be, because it often happens, is the vendor is still very important to the business. 
mm-hmm. and he wants to step back, but he, he's still very involved in the business. It's very hard to accommodate that within a trade structure. Yeah. Whereas saying, right, roll over, have another couple of million still in the business after you've done your deal, you know, have an equity stake for the next round and then exit in full there once we got the business to that point gives you that transition that can happen as you get to a bigger scale it's almost never a vendor-owned business and therefore you don't have quite as much of that you know to, to, to challenge to deal with so it's a it's a flexibility thing i think you, you you the parameters required to make it and so i'll be able to get your view but the parameters to make a trade a business attractive to trade certainly at the smaller end are quite hard to meet at that scale they become easier to meet as you get larger and, and you get more diversified and and, and, and different no, look I, I completely agree i think um yeah especially around the point of you know the uh, sort of de-risking the entrepreneurial ends with incremental management uh, and going through going through a few turns of priority invariably makes a business bigger and easier for trade to acquire so i agree with what miles was saying yeah and and sam i guess on on your side of things at kind of the the larger the larger end of the market um is where you've seen trade win a process over a financial sponsor um what has been kind of some of the the key reasonings or what what's what's led to to that outcome i think um so one of the first questions product you often ask by management is so what can you do for us um and that's something trade can often answer very quickly in, in terms of you know we can we we have a network in europe or we have offices in US or we have a database of this customers or we have a marketing channel of this it's suddenly it can very tangibly give uh, the, the vending business scale that it would otherwise take years and a lot of cost and risk to build so mm-hmm. I think so, and you can you know the, the best trade acquirers there is a sort of meeting of minds and vision between the, the, the respective management teams and as I say it's just c- combined with that incentivization scheme which can almost mirror a private equity scheme then suddenly your vending CEO can think, wow, that, that gives me the network to conquer America in, or suddenly get access to America in one year and not five. Or that gives me a database which, which I can really channel a lot of my product down in terms of incremental sales. Sure. And again, that would cost me millions and take years to build. So I think it is, uh, fundamentally, I think it is very often that that speed of speed and a risk-free scale-up that, that help trade get over the line. Yeah, yeah, sure. So kind of those those business synergies and, and kind of quicker, quicker progression, I guess, um, in terms of growth. Yeah. What, yeah. What's really interesting there is actually if you were to flip it on its head and, and look at our side of, of what we do at the lower end, it's exactly the same conversation with management. And it's it's from a slightly different, you know, the same lens. But the question and where we if we are going to win a transaction, it'll be on this basis is what can you bring to us? You know. I can get the money, you know, you're, you're a good business and you're being run through a process and there's multiple bidders, you're going to get the money um, and we're all going to get beaten up broadly to similar terms. That's just the nature of the beast. The question is, what can that that backer, be it trade or private equity, bring to the table that is going to make that more attractive for the decision makers of that deal? And as, yeah. as you say there, Sam, the decision makers typically are more management as you get bigger. Um, you know, at the, at the at my end, it's a blend of often an exiting or partially exiting vendor and management. So you have competing in- incentives there. You have fast, first fastest past the post and you know highest price. Obviously, very focused for the vendor. You then have um, you know what can you bring to the table from the management team, and you know management teams define how 
processes run you know we've got to do a diligence exercise if they're not going to cooperate and they're not up for it then how will you ever get the information out at the right level in reality you have to find a an answer with your trade or private equity that gives that team a reason to, to really want to do the transaction yeah. um, and so i think when when we ask the question of what can a gp do or what can a trade business do to win a transaction yes there are then things around structure yes there are things around process but ultimately it comes down to why is that transaction better for the key decision makers in that process um and depending on who those are between vendors and, and management mm -hmm. um, and therefore what 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 can you offer um to that business in our case it's it's chairman expertise and experience professionalizing a business and taking it through you know all of those uh, changes that need to be made to get it onto a bigger more stable footing and grow faster etc you know if it's trade it as, as sam said it's the access to a new market you couldn't get into or whatever it may be on the, on that front but you're having the same debate you've got to identify who the key decision makers are and see mm -hmm. if you can find a reason and a way to make it work for them and if you yeah. can't win the deal and it's a simple on either side the question is what tools do you have to use in that transaction in different circumstances and i think some of the tools as we commented earlier that were relatively simple for PE to do which was price and price and speed right nice easy mm -hmm. i can get through that first bit very quickly that's where trade has caught up certainly at the bigger scale um and we've had more in our exit processes we've had more um, credible trade up um trade input into those processes whether they want it or not they've been much more credible than they would have been before and they've been more credible to the management team to give them you know something that's worth doing on the next round okay okay really interesting um great and then i kind of before a couple of questions before we close our discussion today um one on a potential recession and how this might impact uh kind of the the tensions perhaps between um when it comes to auction processes, kind of the, the tensions between GPs and, and trade buyers um, will either change the way in which they approach um, deal processes. Um, Sam, any any thoughts on this? Yes, I'll to end on. Um, I think, <laughs> look, I think if you were to talk to a lot of priority houses, they would say they, they've done their best deals, um, not exits obviously, but in terms of investments in tighter times. And I think, therefore, you will see I think you might well see private equity step back a bit while we while the economic situation sorts itself out and then move very aggressively to capitalize on what will eventually be lower valuations. You've seen the tech bubble sort of bursting. We talked earlier about how consumers got a bit tighter in particular. So I think you're going to see private equity, as that hideous phrase about catching a falling knife, or, you know, they might they might be sitting back a little bit at the moment, but they will move quickly when things look like they've leveled off. I think strategics, as I said earlier, trying to catch up on lost growth. You know the nice thing about a strategic is they are in that market they you know if you're if you are a travel business you want to acquire another travel business travel is what you do private equity have arguably too much choice at times so i think you, you will you'll, you'll see strategics buy into it as well and there's quite a lot of balance sheet strength out there as well so mm. it should be a buyer's market i don't think you say that for many of the last few years it's very much been a seller's market so if times do get tightened i think you'll see a lot of capital deploy there's just always a bit of a lag in valuation expectations, sure. um, which is which is why you know, this year might be quieter than last. If yeah. so, I'd imagine next year will be pretty busy again as valuation expectations catch up mm. with the past pools of demand there are out there from private equity and some reasonably strong corporate balance sheets as well. And, and banks are willing to lend to corporates as well. So there's a bit of a debt divide out there too. So I'd say I, think I could envisage this year being a little bit sticky, 
Um, and then if so, I can imagine next year we'll be pretty active again. Sure, sure, really interesting. Yeah, I think from some conversations I've been having, um, there's been suggestions that certain, perhaps even kind of at the smaller end actually, certain founders or uh, family-led businesses are um, quite resistant to, to selling at the moment because the, the valuations and the pricing doesn't kind of quite meet their expectations um, as the, the market kind of restabilizes. Um, Miles, any anything from you on that? Yeah, I think I think that's fair. I think you always have, if you look at the last 18 months, certainly, and, and we've seen similar flurries in the past, you know, look at 2007, eight and, and so on and so forth, you, you, you get this period of time where things that you appear in, appear in diligence, et cetera, et cetera, and you have to look at them and you say, well, I'm in a competitive process. You know, this is a deal that I do believe can grow two or three times over at the top line and more than that, or certainly at the bottom line. You know, this isn't, that's something I'm willing to accept. What happens now is you look at it and you go, well, I'm afraid that does have to speak to the price we're going to pay for the transaction and so on. And the, as, as Sam said, the vendors adapt slower to mm -hmm. that than, than the, the desires of the market. Um, yeah. So ultimately, I think that, that that readjustment does happen. And I think it's, mo but you know, at the SME end of the market, if I look at most of the businesses we're in, their markets are vastly, vastly bigger than them. And ultimately, if you're looking at, you know, we're talking fraction, you, know, you might have a few that are tens of percents of their market, but on average, they're, they're, they're you know, sub 10% of any market they're in because they're small businesses. And mm -hmm. therefore, you actually have to have a fundamentally better model. And if those those that and this point about flight to quality, in our case, it's flights to fundamentally better models. There are ones that will just win out either way. And for those you're still willing to pay for them, albeit with uh, with probably some more caveats around, as I say, accepting less in terms of the, the hair on it, as it were, in diligence, etc. All businesses at our end of the market have some element of that because they are inherently imperfect and so on. So, you know, we have to we have to we just become a little bit more, I think, um, focused I think on some of those things that you, you feel otherwise the business could trade its way out of in the first year in a white rising market but what mm -hmm. it does do is it, it, it shrinks the number of opportunities that you're prepared to do that with and, and a number of fallout of the outside of that and that's what brings the pricing down because there then will be transactions where the life uh, the life events environment says to someone well I thought I was going to get x for my business i'll get x less than 20 percent, but that's still enough for me to retire on and buy the villa i've always wanted etc <laughs> it, it's time so there, there are different dynamics when you get get to that point um, mm -hmm. but mostly pricing just has to adjust into it but as i say we've never had lots of leverage that have that has driven pricing up and down by two or three turns of a multiple as um two or three turns of multiple you know yeah. lived in a two to three times you know leverage world forever at the lower end of the market and okay. so realistically you know whether it's two or three times leverage is only moving you by one one turn in terms of the capacity there so it's much more about the appetite of vendors to to accept the deal that is on the table at that point mm. where that sits for them um, yeah. so volume does move but it doesn't it doesn't move that quickly at our end in that core area it's sure. the peripheral deals that might otherwise get away start to get more scrutiny and sometimes don't yeah yeah really interesting okay and now um just to finish off we like to leave our listeners with a top tip um from you our expert speakers um so what what would you say um in terms of kind of how can any a buyer stand out and convince management teams that that they're the right buyer and processes today um what what is key to doing this um miles if you go first yeah. 
don't want to give away the special sauce here, so it could be slightly. <laughs> I think I think from our I think the thing certainly at my end of, of, of the of the market is if you're not enthusiastic about the opportunity you're looking at and the business you're looking at and convey that to the management team you lost before you've begun. You know, if you go into a first management team meeting and it's an interrogation and you don't have any comfort with you know. They, they've got to be, imagine sitting on a board with you for the next five years. And if you go in there and make that deeply uncomfortable, which a number of people do, you know, that that doesn't work. Quite simply, that doesn't work. So I think the top tip there is if you're going to go and look at a business, you have to be enthusiastic about that business's prospects and see a, see a future for it. It can't just be a mechanical exercise. Um, and PE can be very guilty of that. So yeah. uh, that's one of the tests I have with my team, which is, do you actually want to be involved in this business? Would you enjoy being on this board? Is there something you want to do? Um, because if you can't if you can't say that and it's purely a numbers game, that's you know probably you're probably not going to be able to convey to a management team that you're the people they want to back them. Yeah, surely, definitely, definitely. I guess it's it's a relationship business, isn't it? So you have to kind of be able to yeah. uh, show uh, show that show that you're. And able that applies to, to a widget manufacturer. It applies to our cinemas business. It applies to any of them. All that same thing has to be there. There's got to be something in that business that you really want to be involved in. Um, because yeah. people can tell if you're being insincere. Yeah, definitely. Great. Thanks, Miles. And Sam, to finish us off. I think, I think if, you, if you take a um, client to meet 10 biodexy houses, the reality is 70% of the content is very similar from biodexy houses. And as, as Miles said, often at the end of it, price and terms can be very similar too. So you've only really got sort of 30% to work around with. And I think, you, you know, what else? Chemistry, you can't really, that's just inherent in who you are and how you manage situations. But I think the I think doing your homework in advance and coming with real intelligence into that business, into how it might grow into some of its peers, uh, I think just means that you can engage immediately. We're finding now that sector specialisation is so important uh, in that you know you have to be able to live and breathe. These, if you're dealing with an entrepreneur, they live and breathe their business. And you've got to give the sense that you understand them, their business, and the direction of travel of that business and other similar businesses. So I think so often the winning feature when it comes down to it is just that, that sort of intellectual chemistry, if you like, about I feel like my management team says, I think they really got my business and they seemed really enthused about where I was taking it. And I liked their, the following X, X, Y, Z ideas they threw at me. That is the sort of the missing gap. Definitely. So considering chemistry and doing your homework um, on businesses to ensure you're able to kind of stand out there. Um, great. Thank you so much, Miles and Sam. It's been really great speaking with you. So thank you so yeah. much for sharing your insights. Okay. And thanks everyone for listening. Thank you.